Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Compliance Guy Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. I am excited to be back after a couple of weeks of being away. I get to welcome back my very good friends, Stephanie Howard, Christine Hall, Terry Fletcher, and Paul Spencer. Uh, Scott Kraft is off gallivanting around the country doing his 50 baseball parks during his mm. 50th year of being on this earth. So, Scott, enjoy it because this will be the last time I allow you to miss around him. <laughs> okay. He's on assignment. That's funny. That's right. He is not on assignment. <laughs> not for us anyways. Anyways, I know he's getting ready to board an airplane. Safe travels, buddy. Enjoy it. All right. So we are here today um, with what I think will be a fascinating conversation because I'm <laughs> surrounded by fascinating people. Um, we started to have an interesting conversation right before we came on, and I want to kind of continue that. And Terry's shaking her head. No. <laughs> Oh. Terry, it's not about the latter discussion. Okay, I was going to say, <laughs> that's gone down a road. See, even Paul's yeah. like, no. There are, certain, <laughs> there are certain conversations that have to remain yeah. in certain areas. Okay, so um, <laughs> let's start with talking about something that is being labeled a chronic condition, but it's not. Now, some may argue and say, well, it could be a chronic condition depending on certain socioeconomic issues, but pregnancy. Well, I have firsthand experience with that. <laughs> okay. Go on, Christine. I'm going to give you the floor first. This is yours. Okay. So Terry had said, mentioned something earlier in one of our group chats about ACOG, right, Terry? Yeah. ACOG has come out and said that pregnancy is a chronic condition. And we're all kind of like, <laughs> what? whoa wait a minute because first of all it, you're not pregnant for a year although it feels that way i will go on on record as to saying it does feel that way yes. um it's not something that requires a physician to maintain to be stable although it is highly recommended i did and what are you really managing eat well do good don't do bad things while you're pregnant. So I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't give it more than a self-limiting or minor problem unless it presents with other complexities, of course. And there's there's always those exceptions. But Terry, you just you absolutely floored me with that one. When a, when one of my clients asked me, I thought it was a joke. You know, some of my clients will send stuff over to me. I think they're testing me to see how much I can actually answer. And so and one of my membership clients said, hey, we're being told that that, you know, pregnancy is chronic by ACOG. And I'm like, oh, come on, this isn't this, that's funny. And she's like, no, I'm, I'm serious. And so this is part of the, Sean always asks us to send over some topics for today. And to me, it's make it make sense. And some things that we're doing right now, how do we talk to our client base? And I'm going to put it out to the group. 
when things don't make sense. That's one of them. Remember in the days of COVID, now we're past the PHE, but in 2020, we got guidance from AHA, the American Hospital Association, and from CDC that said, well, if you if the doctor thinks they look like they have COVID, then they have it. And I'm like, what if the test is negative? Like, that's okay. You still have it. And I'm like, no, 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 that, that doesn't make sense. And then they came back in September of the same year and said, but we are giving you 20% extra in the hospital for those patients who have COVID, but we're only going to give it to you if they have a positive test. And it's amazing how those numbers changed. <laughs> it's like, oh, if we're not going to get paid extra, then it's coming down. But then there's also things, and we've talked about this before, again, make it make sense. I've got a doctor right now that I'm auditing an orthopedic physician, and he's seeing patients for different fracture care and things like that. And I don't see any musculoskeletal exam. And I said, well, where's the, where's your exam for that fractured ankle or for that knee problem or for that shoulder? He's like, it just has to be medically appropriate. And I feel that the only him, the only medically appropriate exam is constitutional. I'm like, what? He goes, I can look at a patient and that's fine. And I'm like, you need to have some musculoskeletal elements. He goes, where does it say that? It doesn't. And so now we're having. Wait, 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 though. I have, I have a thought behind this. For payment purposes, it only needs to be a medically appropriate exam. But for the other two, continuity of care or for um, litigious reasons, malpractice reasons, they still need to be a doctor. That's what I said. I said, well, if you have to take this in front of a judge, let's put reimbursement aside. And you're basically diagnosing a patient with a knee problem or an ankle problem or a shoulder problem, and you have none of those exam elements, how do you support that? He goes, because AMA has come out and said, it just has to be medically appropriate in my opinion. And so Sean is always good about the technical technicality to get doctors kind of off about things. It's, it's really tough because I try to look at what the standard of care is as well and say, well, this is the standard of care put out by AOS, for example, because they have put out some things as far as what it should look like. But when you have AMA and CMS saying, well, we're leaving it up to the doctor, but then you have their specialty society saying, well, sort of, this is what we expect to see. And they're their lobbying effort. And then I think we have to go to best practices, but then it's really hard because doctors just seem to want to know or providers what's technically correct or legally correct. And I'm telling you guys, there's some gray areas there. And Paul, I'll throw it to you. I, I know that you probably dealt with this too. What are you seeing here? Well, I'm I'm seeing something similar. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> the first thing I'd like to say is that uh, if you haven't begun a process to update your office-based templates in order to remove a 14-point review of systems from your documentation, what are you doing? Because just putting all of that information into your note raises the chances that something within the history uh, or the chief complaint is going to be in complete contradiction to that review a systems template that you keep blowing into every single chart. That's number one. Number two is there's an easy way to solve this through the AMA. And unfortunately, uh, it requires uh, freedom of information to everyone except physicians. Uh, you know, somewhere within the Medicare fee schedule, within CPT, is a description of every single CPT code and what uh, that entails. 
unfortunately, that's in a black box. We don't see that. We see, you know, it, it's, it would be very useful for surgery coding more so than E&M, but that could go a long way into changing the way this is viewed uh, from a documentation standpoint. Let, let, let me say a couple of things, right? So first to the American Medical Association point, Paul, that you were making, right? So I think it's, it's important when we start talking about things and Terry, what you were bringing up with associations, specialty societies, things of that nature. You use two words that are critical, best practice, okay? Best practices are great because they speak to what our friend, you know, at uh, Cairo Medicare brought up, which is standards of care within the industry, within the profession. But the problem is you can't tell somebody definitively you have to do something this way unless we have something codified in the law because what you're telling people is hey this is what we believe is a good guideline this is what we believe is a best practice and this is listen that's the arguments that i make in court right when i'm sitting there and a prosecutor says to me but Sean the american medical association uh definition States, and I have to remind them that the American Medical Association AMA CPT manual is subject to interpretation because they are guidelines. A guideline is not a regulation, it's not a statute, it's not a law. The AMA CPT book does not have the effect of law, nor does a local coverage determination, it, nor does a coverage article, right? What has the effect? of law are national coverage determinations because those are pushed through an open comment period. Those are promulgated into the law. So for example, <clears throat> two weeks ago, I was in London, Kentucky with Ron Chapman, okay, um, who is one of the premier uh, criminal defense attorneys in healthcare. I mean, this is all the guy does. He is literally the Fred Astaire of a courtroom, the way that he's able to navigate it. He and I have had five federal criminal cases in the last 12 months. All five of them resulted in full acquittal at trial. And the reason why is the prosecutors come in with guns blazing and they do not have the level of preparation and they do not understand health care because these men and women that are prosecutors have to prosecute tax fraud, they have to prosecute other types of criminal behavior. So healthcare is not something that is front and center for them. And what we have to remind them is this. A guideline is just that. It's a guideline. It is not a statute, a law, or a regulation. They bring up local coverage determinations all the time in these court cases. Well, CGS says this. And my argument to that is, guess what? An LCD is created in that local market. As a matter of fact, and Terry and I were talking about this um, uh, before, there's an OEI report from the Office of the Inspector General that says, hey, CMS, with all of the variations that exist between your Medicare administrative contractors on your LCDs, it's making it very hard for providers to figure out what they're supposed to do. 
And the confusion is also real for us here at the Inspector General. There's an actual OEI report on this. Now, when they come into, you know, when they get ready to cross-examine me, <clears throat> one of the things that they'll say to me is, but Sean, a physical examination or a history, history is supposed to require certain elements. And I'm like, no, not after 2021. And that's what we're talking about here. It is a medically appropriate history and or examination. And the AMA actually says a medically appropriate history or examination is left to the discretion of the provider, depending on the patient's presenting symptoms, signs, or problems. So if you want to talk about the fact that we had a high rate of subjectivity under 95 and 97 guidelines, folks, that goes out the window. Our subjectivity now under 2021 guidelines is way more subjective. It all comes down to clinical judgment. It comes down to a strong history of present illness, even though I know it's not a requirement. But the HPI paints a clear picture of why that patient's coming in. You've got to have a chief complaint. I don't care whether you're building, building a level two, three, four, or five. I don't care. We need a symptom, sign, condition, or other physician-recommended problem. And it has to be at all levels of E&M. So, listen, you know, you guys who are listening in, and by the way, I didn't get a chance to say to all of you who are tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us, we're so glad to have you here. Welcome. Okay. Now, back to what I was saying. Um, we have got to, we have got to understand that you cannot prosecute a provider when the guidance is subjective, when the guidance lacks anything definitive and again Sean, let me, in LCD let me is a regulation go ahead please yeah, go, go, there's go. one thing and i'm going to throw it over to christine these guidelines that are in ama when they're put into the final rule and they agree with them of the physician's medical fee schedule now you are talking it is in law i've had to defend it that way christine you've seen that as well right absolutely and that, that's why when i look at the proposals i think it's so important that we participate in it. This yeah, year's proposal broke my heart because I read over and over again that they did not get the physician engagement that they were looking for to resolve some of the issues. Um, but again, the proposal goes through that comment period. The proposal gets analyzed and we get the final ruling. And that final ruling there does kind of set that, or it does, it sets that standard in place. And this is how we're going to move forward until somebody proposes something different. So that when it gets into that final rule for the fee schedule, um, when, when I'm defending a claim or when I'm on the other side, I also work for the payers too, both sides. And I feel like I need to do that. That, that gives a balance of the fact that I'm not just a physician advocate. I understand what the payers are doing. I don't always like it, but I understand where they're coming from. And so when I look at that and look at the fact that yes, we're defending it based on the fact that it's in the, Medicare fee schedule, final rule that is considered published law. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have to, you're correct that it's very subjective now and it, it's not well-defined. I guess that's the best way to put it. It's not well-defined. So those of us that are, you know, clinical documentation auditors or specialists, we're struggling a little bit because we're having to argue with the actual physician or with the actual clinician and say, well, this is the, the standard of care that we're seeing. And they're like, yes, but 
it's my judgment. And I'm like, okay, but how can we're going to need more from the payers, Terry, the yeah. payers are going to have to support us in saying, this is not enough information for us to pay you that 99214. It's just not, although you need a medically appropriate history an exam, but like you're saying, there's lots of exams. I, I'm seeing them over and over again, where the, the data is inconsistent between the review of systems, everything's normal. The exam says, no, there was pain in the joints. Then we're looking at the assessment down there and they don't even talk about any of that. I'm seeing a, a muddier medical record than ever before because of this. And the providers are saying, well, it doesn't even matter because it doesn't count. And that's just a misconception. Again, if I took this note and I gave it to a brand new doctor across the state and said, take, take over care of this patient, could they do it with that one note? Well, and this, the, what I'm seeing, and actually, Stephanie, I'll put this to you because I know you're seeing this with diagnosing, is that I think what's lacking here is going back to basics and remembering that to bill anything, what's the first thing it has to be? Medically necessary. And we it's like we're having to jump back to the beginning and Sean and I talk about this all the time. If, it, if it's not medically necessary, meaning that you can prove why the patient's there and why you ordered the things you did to prove what the outcome is and to continue to you know, move forward with care, then you're going to have a problem because that's, in, that's now in the law. That's in the Social Security wait, Act. Wait, wait, so, you mean you know. we just can't do it because it gets paid? No. I thought oh my we gosh. could do that on everybody because we get paid for it. Oh my gosh. Even Sean, if they no, don't need it and we're not going to treat them for anything that's because we're not going to find. Okay. Sean and okay. I've had so well, many let me, arguments. Let me, let me say two things. Yes. Yeah, well, so let me then say throw it to things. Stephanie because I know she's been yeah. looking at this. So first, okay. I understand that the, the AMA changes were accepted into the Medicare physician fee schedule final rule. But what, what was it that they accepted? They accepted something subjective that says a medically appropriate history or exam is required. They have not defined what medically appropriate is. So I understand even though something was accepted into a final rule from Medicare, it's still subjective. You can't hold somebody liable for getting something wrong if you've not defined it. Second, understand that laws are created and established by the government, and they hold everyone to the same standard. Unlike rules, okay, rules in most cases, the consequences for breaking a law are predetermined and do not vary based on the conditions or the circumstances. Rules rules can be, again, highly subjective because we don't know what the predetermined outcome is going to be if you break a rule. It is not a law. I understand it's the Medicare physician fee schedule final rule, but it's a rule. It's a rule. And yes, they accepted the AMA changes, God, you guys make me feel like I'm arguing with a prosecutor on cross-examination, but I love it. And I hope that's what our, our listeners and viewers are taking away, is that this stuff is not black and white. There are so many shades of gray when you talk about healthcare, and that's why it becomes critical to make sure that your providers are actively engaged 
when there is an open comment period and we don't respond and we don't give our comments, whatever that final result is, that's on us if we didn't engage. All right. I'm going to pause. Let me send it over to Stephanie. Go ahead, kiddo. Okay. So really quick, one thing that I want to just kind of pause here and talk about just for everyone, I'm sure we have new listeners since we've talked about this the last time. Remember what we're talking about and going back and forth on is all about your risk. So when we work things, you know, when I'm working from a preventative perspective, what we're talking about, what Sean is typically going in and defending is not my viewpoint when I'm working from an educational standpoint. So you have to remember when we talk about these things, when we talk about subjectivity, this is heavy on the defense side, which just think of it this way, defense equals dollars and it equals a lot of dollars so when sean's in that courtroom defending you that doesn't come cheap and sometimes you know sean you've even had people sitting in jail waiting for their court date so think of it this way we need to think from the preventative perspective because with what terry's been explaining all i keep thinking to myself is yeah that that physician probably thinks all of his stuff is a level four too on top of not wanting to put his exam, he probably wants to bill high levels of service. And he is going to have to go in and defend that later on if they don't accept it. Um, one of the other things, too, you know, when we think about defense versus preventative side of things, you know, yes, we are arguing here guidelines versus laws. But from a preventative standpoint, we do need to follow the guidelines because that's what's hopefully going to make it so we don't have to get to the point of defense. So I know we all know that on the panel, but we haven't really talked about that in a little while. Um, now, one thing here with the diagnoses, and Terry alluded to this a little bit, one of the things that I've been seeing is that the payer side and I'm kind of shocked by this. I really shouldn't be. But one of the things I've noticed over the past month and a half, two months, is that the payers appear to have loaded all of the ICD-10 guidelines right into their system where they're automatic. And, you know, there's different things before where we've seen, you know, maybe some relationship codes. We were starting to see unspecified deny. But now I'm seeing something in rheumatology, for example, where one particular condition has an excludes one note with another condition. They go out on a claim together. Everything auto denies and comes back because we have the excludes one. So one of the things that I've been thinking of when I work with my clients is how can we tackle this when number one, most of my clients do not have coders. So that means the physicians and the APPs are the ones who are having to code their own encounters. Is it going to be possible at all for them to memorize all of this? No way. Um, the one condition that I saw already was something that I don't even see often in rheumatology. So it's not something that, you know, we can kind of work on from a memory standpoint. One of the other things I've been thinking of, and I'm curious from the, the panel here, what you see with this, you know, with the clients that I have with the EMR systems that they're using, it's not an easy, I want an edit, I want this built on our side, please make it happen. Number one, I think a large part of it is a budget standpoint. You know, you can't just go to your vendors and say, fix this, there's dollars attached to that. Um, depending on the system that you're using, one fix for one particular location does not automatically fix it for 
all of the organization's locations. And then just the sheer volume of the work that would be required to load in ICD-10, I don't really think that all of those guidelines, that that's realistic, that a vendor's just going to be like, oh yeah, let's do this. Because on their side, they're going to have to manually build that. Um, so, so what are your thoughts, Christine? What are your thoughts? What are you seeing? I, I couldn't this? agree with you more. We're seeing more and more providers doing their own coding and they're getting their guidance from the EMR, assuming, and I hear this a lot, that, well, the EMR wouldn't let me bill something out that wasn't, you know, according to guidelines. So if the EMR says it's a 215 and the EMR says that it's, you know, then that's what I deserve at this visit. And how dare you downcode it? So I see that a lot. Um, I also see that even in those practices that do have coders or coder billers, which is what I see more coder biller role than just the coder role, is that no one is really driving the education for them. So did you get your CEUs to keep up your certification? Great. In what? Underwater basket weaving for coders? That's not helpful. It should be the annual hey, you stole my line. You stole my line. Underwater I, I basket weaving for say, coders? Well, not for coders. I either oh. say underwater fire prevention or underwater basket weaving. There we go. There Sorry, we go. go I, I digressed. I apologize. No, that's okay, but that's true. Like we not we're not we're not really setting that expectation. Did you do your annual education? Did you read your guidelines this year? And I, I drive everybody crazy with that term. Did you read the guidelines this year? Um, no, it's not fun, but it's it's part of our craft. Hi, Scott. Um, but it's part of our craft. It's part of what we do and how we become these amazing people. And whether or not your employer insists on it or not, I think we should. Anyway, that's another soapbox. But I'm just saying there we should be increasing our standards and not relying simply on the EMR and not hiring the $12 an hour coder biller who, you know, she did this for a chiropractor down the street for two years. And that's her level of, ex of, of knowledge. I think we need to reinvest in the process and we'll see it on the back end. Less denials, less audits, less litigation if we put the money in up front. And one thing real well, quick before we, we go, go around, um, you know, one thing that I'm finding over the past years, I'm actually having to do a lot of consulting work for EMRs. So whether my client owns their own system, they built their own system, or they're working with a vendor, I, again, I, I go into these things very naive where I think, you know, you're the bulk of an industry, you should have, you know, typical compliance knowledge and be aware of what we have to follow from a CPT ICD-10 perspective, but it's just not there. There's so many times where I will catch a provider on an audit. I no longer just look to that provider anymore to say, what are you doing here? I dig into the EMR system because if you find out that they fill out a template, the template auto drops a code, well, guess what? That's the problem. That's where it all links to. But yet on a surface level, all that risk goes to that physician or APP who's billing out based on the way that those are set up. So I'll share, I'll share a story with everybody. And Paul and Stephanie, you, you know this one. So I have a client, we have a client in the Northeast who was um, subject to a grand jury subpoena. And prior to the grand jury convening, we worked very hard with Matt Lahan, uh, the Chapman Law Group, and 
Uh, Ron was involved somewhat, but really it was Matt Lahan who, I'm telling you, what a, what a great young uh, uh, legal mind he has. And we were able to do an audit of the EMR keystrokes. And we were able to go back and do an audit of the EMR to show how the EMR was structured when it was first set up to auto-populate certain things, such as it would default to who the rendering and or billing provider was, irrespective of who that rendering provider was. And we were able to show a pattern of how these things would default and how the practice tried to engage to get the EMR company to make these modifications, but it never happened and they stayed on them. And some people would be like, well, especially the prosecutor was like, well, why didn't you get another EMR? Okay. Well, have you ever tried to do a data transfer? One, it costs tens of thousands of dollars. Two, when you tell an EMR company that you're leaving them, their willingness to cooperate with you goes right out the window. And three, you got to give the provider who was not involved in the selection of the EMR, who was not involved in the setting up and the structuring of it because it was left to the administration of the organization, give this guy a break. And you know what? Our, our report did what it was supposed to do, and it persuaded the prosecutor from convening the grand jury and they closed the case on our client. And that's a huge win. But that stuff to, to Stephanie, you know, to Stephanie's point, that costs money. You know, I tell people all the time, when you, when you retain me, I promise you, you're not retaining me for my good looks or charm because I possess neither. You are retaining me for mine and my team's knowledge and access to the government officials that we engage with and to the legal professionals that we engage with on a daily basis and who have been part of my professional circle for decades. That's what you're paying for. And I tell people all the time, you can be smart and be proactive and spend some money up front, which will be way less than having to spend fifty dollars and $75,000 on a retainer for a criminal defense attorney and $25,000 on a consulting firm to engage to try to get you off. And to Stephanie's point, in the last six months, I've had three new clients come along and I have a brand new one that I'm going to be talking with at some point later today who have been sitting in prison, federal prison, waiting for their day in court. It's not a place you want to be, especially when you're in places like Texas. All right, go ahead. Terry, I think you had something that you wanted to jump in and say. Yeah, so when we were talking about, you know, make it make sense and some of the guidance we're getting that, um, you know, everybody's really... They're, I'm trying to think of the word I'm using, and I've probably said this before, and because we've all we've all heard the word clickbait, right? Where people look at what the headlines are instead of reading the the guidance, reading the whole article, reading everything. Now, many of you know I write for Pittsburgh Steelers on NFL. Christine, that's football. Um, but just <laughs> so I want clicks because I get paid for clicks based on my articles for that. I don't get paid for people to read the whole article. But in healthcare, let's get, you have to read everything because. Sometimes the headlines just entice the reader 
to read it and they don't read it. And all of a sudden the published guidance, I'm getting people billing for things. And then I don't remember what Sean calls it, but it's basically billing for it and let's see what happens. So they throw it to see if it sticks to the wall. And then if they get in trouble later, they get in trouble later and then they have to put all this money back. But one of the things in particular is that there's a big push to add social determinants of health to a, to a claim or to a, a record and um, you know trying to get that level four. And so one of the things that's been frustrating is you can't just add it for the sake of adding it. I had one um, client say, um, we're in a little bit of trouble here because patients, pediatric practice, patients coming in and they're having a discussion with the providers and they just happen to mention that they're, you know, their child is really getting B's and C's. They used to get A's and B's and they just you know, moved from fourth to fifth grade and they're just noticing a lack of focus and it's just a casual conversation. Well, they added this as a mental health disorder so that they could get a level four visit. The parent lost their mind saying, you just labeled my child without permission. And why are you billing a level four? I was there for 10 minutes and this was just a sports physical. And so Terry, now, they did that to my mom, my mom, they put her as um, live, difficulty living alone. There's nothing difficult about her living alone. She has been living alone a long time and doing quite well. Exactly. And so I'm trying to explain that the headlines to use them mean if they are pertinent to the presenting problem. So, you know, the patient's not uh, progressing as the doctor thought, finds out that the patient can't afford their medication. So they've been taking half of it. It's financial impact. So right there, you've got a social determinant of health or patient can't access certain health care because they're homeless. That's an issue. Or patient, let's go back to the pediatrics. You know, they, they need to have some kind of behavioral health services because yes, they are now feeling depressed. The parents just went through maybe a divorce. There's also some bullying at school. Now you've got an issue, but just to put it down from a casual conversation or a patient, like you said, Christine, met, you know, mentioning that I live alone, that it's not a social determinant of health. And people are doing that to try to boost their um, levels of service. But the other thing, and then I'll, I'll send it back to the group. You know, we were talking about education. I know, Stephanie, you mentioned it. I'm getting a lot of inquiries and a lot of engagements with payers now. So, you know, and I can name them. I've, I've gotten permission. So United Healthcare, I've done a project for CDC. I brought Christine in on those. So it's been great. And now I just got another one for Blue Cross Blue Shield. And they're just saying, we're having a problem. And here's their problem, AI. They're saying all the AI, you know, artificial intelligence, hallucinations. They say for things like, and what that means is that it's been computer programmed and I, it just kind of ties into what we were talking about with the, EN, with the uh, EMR. When the doctor types in ruptured or says ruptured, if it's voice activated, it automatically goes to Achilles instead of spleen or something like that. Oops. Or if the patient has, let's say, chronic condition, maybe diabetes type 2, insulin dependent, um, I've seen AIs that default to that. Oh my gosh, you can't default to the worst whatever. Um, I saw one that the patient complains of chest pain and shortness of breath. The AI automatically labeled them as congestive heart failure. And I was like, oh, for crying out loud. I just, you know, and you know what the doctor said? Well, what I put on there and this saves me and Sean, you get to talk about this or even Paul dictated, but not read. I'm like, okay, that's one thing. That's funny. That didn't, I know. Or the last one, I just saw this today. I was auditing before we started. It said, and this is funny to me. I don't know why I'm laughing, but it was just funny because it's so absurd. 
Mistakes and typos may happen, but it's not the MD's responsibility in the medical record. That was dictated under the doctor's signature. Yeah, but oh, I'm how do you that, like that? <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of those little blurbs that are being added to the medical record that, that doctors really feel that if I if I add this blurb, it's going to allow me to bill incident two. It's going to allow me to, yep. to justify using AI. It's going to allow me to... In what world? But Christine, there... how, how can you say the mistakes and the typos I'm not responsible for or the old school dictated but not read? I mean, Paul, please. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I wrote that, but I didn't write that. I, I know, yeah. right. I wrote it, but I didn't really mean it. Or yeah, no, it, it's the AI's fault. I mean, Sean, how do you how do you defend that? You can't defend that, right? There's no amount of money that defends that. Please tell me that. <laughs> No, there are certain things that are just indefensible, right? And and listen. absurd. <laughs> just, yeah. I mean, we you all know. see this stuff and it just, okay, somebody just posted that's listening. The record may make me look stupid, but it's not my fault. See, we can't yeah. say that out loud, but we totally think it. And I'm not laughing because it's funny, funny, haha, well, I am. But it's funny because we sometimes can't believe that we're still back here. I mean, so I'm going to age myself. I, you know, I've been in, in healthcare a long, 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 long time. So when um, we used to type our claims that nobody, some of you don't know what a typewriter is. So just put it out there, but type our claims. Um, when we used to have to, this is how we would audit. We'd hold up the doctor's note to the light to see if we could read it because it was so illegible. It was so, it was written and we're like, what are they trying to tell me here? And I mean, I've recently had a physician that still is writing the notes. He's not made, made to use the EMR. And I sent him to Sean because we have our, our BAA together. And I'm like, Sean, am I right here? Am I seeing anything? And Sean's like, I don't see what you could build either. And so that's how far back it goes. But it feels like we're back there. We're back to. Now, now I, I, I do want to say one thing, though. Right. And, and this continues to be a fatal flaw of prosecutors when they come in arguing <clears throat> that a level of service isn't a level of service. And it always seems to be level fours, right? That That's always a prosecutor's big focus is 99214-99204. They love those two finish, codes. but It's because level three to level four, there's such a big reimbursement difference. Four to five, not so I much. Get it. Three, to four, three to four is huge. Go ahead. I, I get it. I'm with you. I'm with you. But here's the problem. And this is what I have to explain to providers, okay? Just because something's not documented doesn't mean it didn't happen, okay? Because prosecutors love to say, well, you know, Sean, isn't it true that if it's not documented, they, it didn't happen? And I say, well, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, okay? Providers are human. They are fallible, right? As humans, we are not infallible. We are fallible. So as a provider is sitting and reviewing something that a patient tells them in, in, in conversation or a provider reviews a lab result or they review an image quickly during the encounter, they may not necessarily remember to put that down as, oh, I reviewed an image, even especially when it's negative, right? You know, if there's a positive finding, then 99% of the time we would expect that we would see it. But sometimes when it's a negative finding, they've reviewed it, they told the patient everything looks good, 
you know, it's like what happened with me, right? I had to go for an ESI and I had to have a medial branch block two weeks ago. When the provider, the spine surgeon was sitting in the room with me, he looked at the MRI and he's like, you know, I see the bulging discs. I see some of these things going on. We're not surgical at this point, Sean. Let's go ahead and try some injections, right? I looked at the documentation because I, I always get a copy of my progress notes because I want to see what they're documenting. There was not one mention about the review of the MRI or that the, the, the results were you know negative from a surgical standpoint. But it doesn't mean he didn't review it. The other thing is this. The prosecutor in the Dr. Kusa case, and I could talk about this because Ron and I did a, a, a podcast about it already. The prosecutor in the Kusa case said he put up documentation and there were like two or three sentences written. But then there were, Paul, you remember, all of these chronic systemic diseases that were listed. And the prosecutor said, well, Mr. Weiss, how can you sit here and tell us with two sentences on a sheet of paper that this justifies a level four? And I said, because there's no definitive requirement that is created for these providers to show them what is a medically appropriate history or exam. It could be one to two sentences. And keep in mind, one to two sentences to a clinician can mean pages of information. To a layperson, it means just what we're seeing. But the other point is, do you see that there are five diagnoses that are listed here that are throughout the patient's medical record? This right here tells us that we have a moderate to high complexity from a medical decision making, at least in this aspect of the number of diagnoses and or management options. Listen, my job is to paint doubt. A prosecutor's job, it, it is upon them to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. My job as an expert in these cases is to raise doubt as to the absolute of it. Look, this stuff is highly subjective. But what I will tell you is this is how things happen. I've, I've been engaged now in 40 federal cases over the last seven years. This is how these things play out. I know some of my colleagues are going to disagree with me, and I want to hear it. Go ahead, please. So the problem I see with that argument, and I'm again, I'm not saying it's incorrect. I'm just saying I'm going to take Stephanie's um, word prevention or offensive. Let's how about do that. I try to stay away from sports metaphors because Christine's here, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I mean, the rest of us kind of get that, but I understand your position with defense. And if you weren't around Sean, I think there'd be more physicians in orange jumpsuits. I think that you've, you've done a fantastic job trying to, uh, help, but again, it's expensive to be always on the defensive side and you're having to look not just for loopholes, but, a way to defend them saying, well, this, that, and the other. Well, trying best practices or, or preventative or offensive so that you don't have to defend yourself. The one thing that I think is still happening is that a physician looks at the complexity of the patient and not the complexity of the encounter. And you can't do that anymore. Before 2021, that was how we looked at things, the complexity of the patient. That's why we had bullets and how many past family social histories and how many we had to hit on the review of systems because it was about the complexity of the patient. Now it's the complexity of the encounter and the risk of the encounter. And it's different because you can have, you know, a patient that is, you know, stage four cancer. They, they have all kinds of things going on. They're a challenged patient. And yes, 
first element of the medical decision making for an ENM is problems addressed. But just having uh, today, seven, what does yeah, the today. problem look like today? Because you're getting paid for today's work, right? Not seven, for an aggregation of work over the next six months, right? And the seven diagnoses today only only kids so shows what the patient's history was today. What are you addressing? And typically, it's not all those not all those diagnoses that are listed. It's usually two or three that the patient came in complaining of. It could be managing a chronic problem, but you have to be careful because then it comes into the data points and what are you discussing? And then you go into the risk and medical decision-making that affects the morbidity and mortality of the patient. And a lot of times on these chronic conditions, all I see is continue meds and patient doing well, doing better today is fine, you know? And so you, you have to be careful. And I know that a lot of doctors and I, I've been in this longer than Sean. I mean, only because I'm older than him. But um, the, the one problem we, we see a lot of times is the doctors say, well, the government is just trying to screw us. And that's what the 95, 97 guidelines are. Well, now that we have the 21 and 23 guidelines, <laughs> I wish we had those back a little bit because at least they were defined. At least we had what they were. I mean, I understand it was burdensome, but Sean's going to But let me ask here. a question to the panel. Let, let me ask a let me ask a question to the whole panel because you just raised an interesting point and 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 I know how I handle it in court but I want to hear what your thoughts are when a provider says continue meds as prescribed does that not constitute prescription drug management I'm seeing yes I'm seeing one go eh, and I'm seeing two shake their heads no no not if that's I, all that's it depends. the no. I agree. It depends because remember, prescription drug management is not well defined. One, it's not well defined. One, but two, it, it, actually, it is well defined well, on certain payers. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not going to make it. So I will say this: where my my maybe comes in is because I'm not yeah. going to look at metformin uh, in a separate section of the medical record where it says metformin 500 milligrams twice a day, I'm not going to, and then at the bottom in the assessment, it just says diabetes continue meds. I'm not gonna make a relationship between metformin and diabetes. That's outside of my scope. As a coder, I don't need to know that. I shouldn't know that. If I were a clinical person, that would be an, a different situation. But how do I know that he's not using the metformin to treat two or three other conditions that the patient might have, or that he's using something else to treat that diabetes. I So it really depends. How, how does it present on the record? Does it say diabetes, metformin, 500 milligrams, continue medication? I think that's medication management. But if it just says diabetes, continue meds, that's not medication management because now I'm having to play detective and I'm a play nurse on TV. No, I can't do that. So well, it, and people are taking depends. metformin now for weight loss as well. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. be, there you go. So I well, don't know. I can't Sean, make that marriage. I just pulled. I just pulled up what they say with Noridian, and Noridian is very clear. Please, they say prescription drug management is the initiation, continuation, discontinuation, or modification of any prescription drug medication. It does not include over-the-counter uh, medications, which I actually disagree with on certain circumstances. And it says, or prescribed for only insurance benefits. However, they say how to determine prescription management. Did it require prescriptive authority? Is the provider of record managing that prescription? Um, did they, did, are they evaluating in the encounter the appropriateness of using this medication for the patient 
and continue to just uh, prescribe for the patient and why? And did the, did the practitioner's decision to discontinue the drug or adjust the dosage change relative to the patient's condition? And then they talk about side effects, potential benefits. So they're, they're looking for more information than just continuing. So, so, so I'm with you. I'm with you. But go back to the very first part of what you read, which was the continuation of medication. That's what it says. But that's continue- clickbait. And- but that, you just clickbaited well, it. You just read the, the beginning. You didn't read, but, you didn't but, read but, the rest wait, of wait, the Wait, wait, hold on a second. I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. But remember, w- w- I, there, is a complete, there is a complete difference between <laughs> chart auditing for remuneration versus dragging a provider through either a false claims act or a violation of the healthcare fraud statute and either excluding them from participating or sending them to prison. Okay. But what We're if, okay, about what, some... let's say you're the one defending them. Okay. So you're the defension you're defending. Yeah. And let's say that there was a um, provider that all they said on all their level fours was continue meds, continue meds, continue meds. And everything in that, that visit, that in, those encounters for today was basically patient doing well, everything looks good, nothing going on, chronic conditions, no data points. There was, you know, maybe labs for future, but it was just for baseline. It wasn't because there was a new problem. And then continue meds. And everything was a level four. That's not just... But don't the labs constitute that the provider is managing that patient to make sure that the medication they have them on isn't leading to liver we problems? Don't know. It's not we don't know. We don't know. I don't know what, what but, labs... But, but don't we don't they... know simply... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We don't know no. simply because, because it wasn't documented. We don't know that the provider right. during the encounter didn't say to the patient... How are you doing on your medication? Have you noticed any weight gain, any weight loss? So How's your you're appetite? You're saying that if they I get it, but, but to no, get paid, no, they got to document it. You're saying that if they didn't it. say it, no, to get paid, they don't have to document it, Christine. Oh, no, they don't, don't have agree. to document something unless they're going through an audit. Remember, oh my god, Stephanie has wait. Stephanie has wait. an example. Stephanie, no, shoot, shoot out ahead. the example. I want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so towards the end of 2021. I went in and audited an internal medicine practice and failed every single one of them. What they did, what I think they did, is they got together when the new guidelines came out. They decided on some macro statements, and I say that because they all use the same one. And yes, internal medicine is super heavy, chronic management. I would expect to see almost all, if not all, level fours, depending on their patient population. But the problem was the HPI, well, let's start with the chief complaint. That said chronic follow-up or, you know, condition follow-up, very generic, no mentioning of a condition. The HPI said patient here for follow-up of chronic conditions. That's all that I had. I went into the treatment plan. They identified the ICD-10 codes for the multiple conditions. And then under all of that, there was another blanket statement, same for every patient, each provider, that said, patient stable, doing well, continue current medications. It's all I had. So trying to weigh out risk, trying to give the benefit of the doubt, I, I, you know, started to look at this and I said, okay, what other part of the note could potentially you know, point towards what they're doing. And just like you were saying, Christine, you know, I could go into a medication list. I can Google. I'm not clinical. I won't pretend to be, but I can Google and figure out, okay, this medication is typically for this condition. 
But I ran into other issues because very quickly I realized that the active medication list did not identify the name of the provider I was auditing. So then the next question was, okay, well, is this provider even of the same practice? Continued to go down the rabbit hole. Took me 15 minutes on one patient encounter to figure out what medications were linked back, which I shouldn't be doing. And then on top of it, having to go into the facilities directory to see who was at the same location with each other to see if the provider was potentially continuing a medication from their colleague. With something like that, there is absolutely no way on an outside audit that an auditor is going to go to that extent to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. And I actually just last week or the week before came across another provider trying to do something like this bare minimum. And at the end of the day, it's just not going to pass. You know, even, even to the point of where Sean would have to get involved, this isn't going to pass your first round of audits, let alone escalating way past that point. So, you know, again, back to preventative or defense, but absolutely, there's no way we're not CDI. And it's something, you know, even as I focus on, you know, the risk adjustment side, we're really heavy in that in the industry right now. And even me personally, we have to remember what lane we're in when we're doing our reviews and whether we're professional whether we're working for facilities, what our focus is, and professional profi auditors are not clinical. They shouldn't even be performing CDI functions. But Stephanie, and this is to, to Sean and Stephanie's defense there or, or whatever. Um, I had a client recently who got a $10,000 overpayment and he said, I don't owe this money. I'm not paying this money. And he hired a wonderful attorney, you probably know, um, and a consultant. And $100,000 later, he got to keep his $10,000. $100,000 later. I'm just saying we're Listen, talking prevention versus defense. I, I agree. Listen, I agree with everything that Terry has said. I agree with everything that Stephanie has said. I agree with everything Christine and Paul have both said. At the end of the day, there's no debate. It comes down to preventative versus defensive my positions while they may not be the popular uh, 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 choice of our panel it is the reality of what goes on every single day in this industry i have six pending trials by the end of this year we have probably 15 more administrative law judge hearings we have three Medical composite board peer reviews. Folks, I'm telling you, this is what it is. And and to your point, Christine, you're 100% spot on. Good. You got to keep your $10,000, but it cost you 100000 So you lost 90000 Fine. You won, your, you won your battle, but you lost the war. Okay? I don't disagree, but you got to remember, my job, just like Terry's job, just like Christine... I have to have this conversation all the time with Stephanie and Paul. You have to think outside of the box because an auditor for an insurance company is going to look at their internal guidelines. Guidelines are not laws. They don't have the effect of law. They are best practices. They are guidance. They are not definitives. Now, I understand, and Angela did a great job if you... Um, if you look at some of the comments, uh, Angela Jordan did a great job and she posted something 
from NGS. And it's like I said to her, I agree 100%. But let me ask y'all this one question. Would you agree with me that medical decision-making is highly subjective? Okay. So we're all there. Good. Because it is. And that's just, this is the nature of the beast. But we're talking Um, about getting reimbursed on that subjectivity. So so let me go back to that. It's our it's our responsibility and from a preventive perspective to give the guidance of what is the what's the safest route, the least yes. complex route. The path of least resistance. I am with you. But remember, when you say that we have to have this in order to get reimbursed, we don't. Remember, we don't submit our we don't submit our documentation with our claims unless we're under a prepayment review. This is an honor system, right? So when you submit a claim, you are attesting that the codes on that claim form can be substantiated by the documentation that exists in your medical records. Yes, I agree. In order getting paid is the easy part from an insurance company. Holding on to that money is where the challenge comes in. So it's in order to hold on to remunerations that we received, we have to have the documentation in the medical record to substantiate it. Look, I am a proponent of physicians documenting more than even what they believe in their minds they should have to document. The more documentation you have, the harder it becomes for an auditor, especially a non-clinical auditor, to be able to come back and argue clinical judgment. And yeah, but argue not volume, Sean. It's quality, not volume. I, I think providers quality. need to remember that. It's, You're right. Excuse right. me. Right. No, no, not because I volume, hear a lot of docs are like, quality. I got a 16-page yes. note here, and you're telling me it's a 212? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and Sheila Rodriguez said, Sean, we don't ever want to be on the defense. I agree. But guess what? No matter what, because everything is done through data analytics these days with the insurance companies. Whether you want to be on defense or not, you're going to be because everything is based on algorithms. Everything is based on physician distribution analyses where they make a determination as to whether or not you're an outlier or you have an aberrance in your coding pattern. Whether you want to be on the defense or not, you're going to be. But I understand your point, Sheila, and it's a great point. So that's why you should listen to these brilliant ladies and guy when they tell you, make sure. You're documenting everything that should be in the medical record to remove any doubt from an auditor's mind. I mean, think about this, Paul. How many TPE audits have we represented clients on where their documentation is stellar? Great documentation. Orthopedic group in Texas that I'm thinking about. And what happened? The nurse reviewer came back and said, well, I understand, and just so you know, in the future, that policy that we just audited you guys on is not even in effect any longer. I mean, this is, am I lying, Paul? Was that not what the the nurse reviewer said? So again, listen, this has been a wonderful discussion. It's been a spirited debate, debate, as always. I love uh, uh, these conversations, and I love our panel discussion, especially when Terry gets aggravated with me. I always know when Terry gets aggravated with me because she turns sideways and she won't look at me on the screen. 
So I did my job. To prove you wrong. It means I'm <laughs> looking at my, I'm looking up my information. I'm like, I have this. I can prove him wrong. And I just sent it to you on prescription I, drug management. I sent it to everybody. It it really does. It, it's perspective though. Sean's Sean is in the it courtroom is. all the time, and he sees it from that you know worst case scenario. And some of us are more. We're looking at it on. Listen, we don't want it to get to. No offense, Sean, but we don't want it to get to Sean's level. So if you would just follow these guidelines that have been put in front of you, although they may later on, they might turn out to be good for you in a legal defense. But again, let's think of it this way. Are you really going to shell out $90,000 to save 10? What's that going to do to your practice? What's that going to do to your staff? What's that going to take the toll it's going to take? And God forbid the media get a hold of it. Perception is reality. So at the end of the day, no one got that message that the doc got to save his $10,000. All they heard was, Docs on trial, right? And and yep. that's a big thing. So I think it's it's a lot of it is perspective. It is. And I have both sides. I do both legal yep. arbitration and payer education. I do physician, obviously, physician audits and payer audits. So I'm seeing everything. And I and the thing that also we don't mention, we always talk about Medicare, is the fact that commercial plans have their own language and their own rules. Medicare is one thing, but everybody else, they have their own rules. And if you signed a contract, you've got to follow their rules. Absolutely. All right. We're going to give Terry the last word. So we are signing off. So to each and every single one of y'all who tuned in, logged on and hung out with us today, what a great debate. What a great conversation with the entire panel. Terry and I will be back tomorrow debating each other again on our hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. Quite certain it's going to be an interesting conversation because I know Terry and I know Terry doesn't let things go. So we will be back with you all tomorrow. I have some great interviews coming up later this week with some other wonderful guests on the Compliance Guy. So until then, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to the Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy. <laughs>